0: Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 19th of November 2015, and I'm very pleased to welcome back to the programme our good friend Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, one of the most highly respected voices in the alt media on matters to do with geopolitics and economics, and of course well-known and indeed well-loved by listeners to The Mind Renewed. Dr. Roberts' career spanned academia, journalism, business, public service. He's held numerous senior academic positions in universities. He was associate editor and columnist for the Wall Street Journal. He served as assistant secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policy during Reagan's first term in office, after which he was a consultant to the U.S. Department of Defense and the U.S. Department of Commerce. Dr. Roberts, great to be speaking with you again. Always a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Yes, June. it's always a pleasure to be on your show.
0: Thank you. Well, as I say, each time you join us, it's very clear that people do very much appreciate your commentary on what's going on in this. As I, I always call it these days, this an increasingly mad world uh, because I get numerous messages from people saying that you've helped to make sense of things for them in a way that the certainly the mainstream media doesn't manage to do for various reasons. So it really is good to have you on again. And today I want to ask you about two main things, really. When I first invited you to join us, I said I was keen to hear your take on the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and these various other so-called free trade agreements that are in the offing, unfortunately, out there. But that was before, of course, these horrific events that took place in Paris a week ago on Friday the 13th of November. And uh, since then, I've noticed that you've been writing quite a lot about this at your website, paulcraigroberts.org. So I really wanted to ask you about this as well, so I'd like to start there, if I may, but just before we do, I want to say something to give a kind of clarification as to where I'm coming from with this. And that's to say that I am acutely conscious that questioning tragic events like this is sometimes seen as distasteful or even callous. So let me say straight away that my thoughts and prayers are indeed with the families and friends of those who were murdered and with those who are still struggling for their lives in hospital. And I do not approach the task of questioning this official narrative lightly at all. In fact, I would rather not feel that it's necessary to do so but i think that we now live in times in which we are lied to so frequently and so seriously that it is our duty to question in cases where we have good reasons to do so so it's not for questioning's sake but for the sake of getting at the truth of what is actually going on so having said that uh, let me turn to you dr roberts for your reaction to these events what were your thoughts when you first heard about the paris attacks and what has caused you to question what we've been told
1: well, I'm the devil's advocate. Clearly, the media is not. It simply uh, serves as a mouthpiece for whatever the government claims. And the governments can claim anything in half. And I think we, we know that by now. We've had endless examples of Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction, Iranian nukes, Syria's use of poison gas against its own people, all the absurd things said about Gaddafi. It's endless. you know. We, and we also know that there have been a massive number of false flag attacks in history that governments use. Uh, they deceive the people. They attack their own people in order to achieve agendas. Uh, there's a Nice listing of a huge number of them currently on the internet. Uh, We know about Operation Gladio, which was bombings of Europeans conducted by the CIA and Italian intelligence after World War II during a period to discredit communist parties so their votes would fall off and stop rising. We know this is a fact. The president of Italy acknowledged it. There were massive uh, public hearings, testimony from the operatives in Italian intelligence that conducted the bombings, who said that the focus was on women and children because uh, killing women and children had more of a discredit effect on the communists who were blamed. We know about Operation Northwoods, which the Joint Chiefs of Staff presented to President John F. Kennedy. Uh, this was a plan for the United States military and the CIA to kill Americans on the streets of Miami and Washington, to shoot down American airliners, to strafe the refugee boats coming from Cuba in order to blame Castro and build public acceptance for regime change in Cuba. Uh, We know that Kennedy reacted in horror, fired the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and many people associate his rejection of this with his subsequent assassination. I could go on for hours, uh, but as I say, there's a nice long listing of the uh, false flag attacks conducted by governments online. So if you just are minimally aware of history. And then you look at the situation uh, in Europe at the time of the Paris attacks. What was happening? All of the establishment political parties in Europe, particularly the UK, Germany, France, all of them were in grave trouble because these political establishments had supported, indeed had enabled, Washington's wars in the Middle East that had the result of producing millions of refugees now overrunning Europe, discrediting the establishment political parties, and what we could see was the rise of the distant parties, such as Marine Le Pen's National Front where the latest poll in France showed she was the likely next president of France. So the French political establishment was facing wipeout from power. We see also the rise of the UK Independence Party rising off of the immigration issue. And we see the same thing happening in Germany, where there is a tremendous resistance to the massive numbers of refugees from America's wars that the German government is accepting. So the minute you had these Paris attacks, first words out of the mouth of the French president, the borders of France are closed. So there goes Marine Le Pen's issue. There goes the UK Independent Party's issue. There goes the distant party in Germany's issue. The same thing... In the United States. In the United States, the two establishment political parties, uh, their candidates for the presidential nomination were being slaughtered by two outsiders, Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders. The political establishment in the United States was experiencing loss of control. And yet the minute the Paris attacks occur, Sanders, Trump, they're out of the news, they're pushed into the background, the whole picture has changed, the American television networks all proclaim that, okay, now the whole presidential campaign has changed, the whole issue now will be on foreign policy and war, and so it has served the entire Western political establishment. It has kept them in power, and it's disposed of their enemies. And notice, too, what is the main consequence of the attack in Paris? They're now going to have their own Patriot Act. What was the main consequence of 9-11? We lost our civil liberties to the Patriot Act, and now the same thing is happening in France. Now, isn't that curious? Is this just another coincidence? So if you ask the Roman question, which we should always do, in fact, good prosecutors and police investigators who actually still investigate crimes... There's not many of them, but there's still some. They always ask the question, who benefits? Clearly, not ISIL. How does ISIL benefit from the borders being closed? How can they infiltrate Europe on the backs of refugees if the borders are closed? How does ISIL benefit from provoking uh, the French bombing of its positions in Syria? Uh, How does ISIL benefit from NATO boots on the ground and invasion? which the French president is very keen to invoke Article 5 of NATO to bring troops. How does ISIL benefit? They don't. They have no benefit from this. Another very interesting thing about ISIL is it's brand new. It just appeared out of nowhere. It sort of took over, you know, when when the al-Qaeda bogeyman ran out of steam, they came up with a new one, this ISIL. First of all, what is ISIL? We don't really know. It seems to be something that the CIA created to overthrow Gaddafi in Libya. And then it was sent to overthrow Assad in Syria. We do know that the Americans, or Washington rather, was very protective of ISIL, uh, resisted strongly Russia's uh, attack on ISIL, mischaracterized it, went on and on and on. Putin asked time and time, join us in this attack. We've got to put down these people. We have to do it. And he's refused over and over by Washington. So um, where did a group that appeared out of nowhere acquire such global reach to conduct bombings in Beirut, in Lebanon, in Turkey, to shoot down a Russian airline over over Egypt, to conduct a multi-pronged attack in Paris. You're talking about fantastic capability. How did they acquire this global reach so quickly?
0: Well, I suppose we could point to the effect of funding from billionaires in the Arab Gulf State region and the taking over of oil fields and the revenue from selling that oil and capturing of military equipment.
1: Sorry? Julian, I mean, you've got to have operational capability, knowledge. Uh, knowledge of France. Uh, you know, where did this come from? It's really uh, very hard to you know, comprehend.
0: Yeah, can I go back to one point that you made earlier, and I think it's a powerful point, but I said that I was going to play something of a devil's advocate with you on this, and that is the, the idea that, well, you know, how does this possibly benefit ISIS? And I agree, it's not at all clear how this does benefit ISIS. However, I suppose one could say that ISIS is not behaving rationally, they're so full of hate that all they want to do is to create mayhem and they're not even thinking in terms of what the cost might be to them strategically.
1: Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If they are that irrational, how do they have the power to pull off so many attacks so close together in time? A Russian airliner, Lebanon, Turkey, Paris. This is an amazing operational reach. So uh, I'm the devil's advocate because the entire Western media is lined up on the side of the official story. The entire Western media hasn't asked a single question.
0: So are you saying that because of the strategic and operational difficulties in pulling off these kinds of things, that it almost necessitates some kind of Western backing?
1: Yes. Somebody has to know Paris. They got to know French security measures. They've got to, I had a leak to me from someone in European security that there was a massive cyber attack on the French mobile data tracking system. For 48 hours prior to and during the Paris attacks, so the police were blind. Do you really think ISIL has that capability? The person who leaked the story to me said that to coordinate something like that required state participation. They said, moreover, to coordinate something like this raises so many signs that it puts the state on alert. Now, I don't know if this report is true or not. I posted it and said if security experts think this could be credible. They need to ask the French government about it. But nobody has. No one has asked a word. That's the most puzzling thing about this whole story.
0: Presumably this is, obviously you can't tell me who the source was, but presumably this is a source that you have some faith in.
1: I have no way of knowing. Mm. I have no way of knowing. But clearly whoever leaked this understood how this works, how these systems work, and what the vulnerabilities are. And I thought, I said, well, suppose somebody just made this up and was having fun, or they want me out on the limb. So or what? Most reporters don't know if the stories lead to them are true or not. They've got no way of knowing. They're not experts. They don't know what agenda is being served. But they think about it. And I was thinking about, well, what agendas does this serve? I can't think of one. Clearly the source was uh, felt endangered. So let the experts Look at it. I didn't say it was true. I said, this is what I was told. Let's have somebody ask about it. If experts think this is credible, ask. But no questions have been asked about anything. The media simply repeats what the government says. There's no investigation. There are many curious I think, I, aspects to this. Well,
0: I was just going to say that, uh, you know, one of the things that really concerns me about this is that because of the sophistication of it, you know, it must have taken weeks, months to plan. It's multiple sites, it's coordinated. And I understand that some of these people who have been identified were known to, not just in French intelligence, but uh, other intelligence as well.
1: well I, I, why do you, uh, mm-hmm? you only understand that because that's what they tell you do And they say... And they also say, well, ISIL has taken credit. But how do you know who took credit? We have no way of knowing. We don't know ISIL. We can't go talk to them. and We get a report that says ISIL has taken credit.
0: Maybe all sorts of people who have taken credit, and the one we get to know about is, is ISIS, yes.
1: That's right. It could be. You know, it used to be when Operation Gladio would blow up people in train stations in Italy, all kinds of left-wing groups would take credit. Or claim to be. If you look back, it was probably all some kind of intelligence front putting out all these claims to further discredit all the left-wing groups. I mean, you don't know who's putting out this claim. It could have been the CIA who issued the statement. Uh, You know, we have all these fake videos of Bin Laden. You know, over the 10 years, he kept getting younger and younger. And his beard got darker and darker, lost all its gray. (laughs) You know, people can... Say anything, any intelligence service can issue any kind of claim in the name of somebody.
0: Sure, but going back to these claimed terrorists here, the reason why I brought it up was because if it is in fact the case that the intelligence agencies and services did know about these people, I mean, from what I've heard, they seem to know a fair amount about at least some of these people, then, you know, and given the reports of bomb threats that afternoon at the Gare de Lyon train station and at a hotel and you know, and especially given that we're told that there was a, a multi-site attack exercise by the authorities that was going on as, as well that day. And, and how, you know, how come all that information and the circumstance and infrastructure didn't add up to action that could actually have prevented this from happening? I mean, let me just note a few things. This is simply from Wikipedia here. We have this Bilal uh, Hadfi, a 20-year-old Belgian who previously fought in Syria with ISIL with, for, for over a year and a supporter of Boko Haram. Ibrahim Abdeslam, a French 31-year-old member of Molenbeek, terror cell living in Belgium. Now, what I'm saying is, you know, if this sort of information, I mean, it may not be true, but if it is true, then how come those people were not spied upon so consistently that it would have been known what was going on?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good question. The media should be asking that of the authorities. It's just another sign that something's wrong with the story. Well, let me make another point. Washington still wants to exit Assad from Syria. And yet Washington was caught off guard by the boldness of uh, Vladimir Putin, who sent in Russian Air Force to get rid of uh, ISIL. Or ISIS or Islamic State. It's got all these names. This caught Washington off guard. Uh, The Russian presence in Syria is very small but highly effective, and it's basically busted up the uh, gains, the advances that uh, ISIL had achieved, and they're on the run. Well, all of a sudden, we see now with the French leading the case, uh, it looks like. Uh, Washington is going to change his mind and agree to enter into a coalition with Putin, uh, U.S., France, Russia, uh, to attack ISIL. This would be a huge change in the American policy, and you would have to say, well, what really is going on here? Possibly what's really going on is that Washington has figured out how desperate Putin is to have a common front against ISIL and therefore is roping him into a common front. And once he's in that, he will lose control. And then that common front will be used under the pretext of fighting ISIL to overthrow Assad. And there, Russia will be caught up in that, and Putin can't stand up and say, well, look at me, I was a fool, They, they deceived me. So this is a way of Washington putting a halt to the march that Putin stole on them and regaining control over the situation. Well, it's very
0: interesting to hear you say that, because Mikhail Kazvanov was on BBC Radio 4 two or three days ago, actually. There was a morning show, and he was saying that, you know, if Russia is serious about fighting ISIS, then it needs to stop supporting Assad. (laughs) Otherwise, it's not going to be taken seriously as a true partner in this fight. So, you know, what you're saying there echoes immediately with what uh, Kazvanov was saying on the show.
1: Right. That's exactly it. And what the deal will be with Putin is, look, you want to get rid of ISIL? okay, Uh, But you've also got to agree to get rid of Assad. And Putin does want to get rid of ISIL because I think he fears that if they have a base there, then all of the Muslim areas in the Russian Federation are going to come under these kinds of attacks. And so I can see that Putin would be trapped. He'd have to say, all right, we have to get rid of ISIL. That's more important than keeping Assad. And so I think this is where it's going. And I think he's already trapped and that that's what will happen. So it comes back to Cui Bono. Now, you see, Julian, what I'm doing is being the devil's advocate. Against the media that ask no questions whatsoever, that simply trumpets the propaganda handed them.
0: And you're not allowed to ask questions. I mean, you're not even allowed to bring into question Western policy, Western foreign policy. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, you know, famously, of course, has done this. And yet there are all sorts of voices uh, shouting him down for this. I was only listening to, uh, I think it was, a, I can't remember his name, but a Labour MP who was actually saying, you know, it's dreadful what uh, Jeremy Corbyn is saying about this. And he, I think, he likened what he said to something like, you know, it's being an apology for ISIS or you know that kind of uh, language and I just thought you know, this is ridiculous you can't even question what the West is doing because if you do you're shouted down and called names and it's, it's most obnoxious
1: Well just look at it uh, Julian uh, allegedly how many people were killed 120 or something like that in Paris uh, and it's a huge uh, act of terror, it's heartless well how many people have the United States and the British and the French and the Germans killed in the Middle East in 14 years. Millions, dead, dispossessed, refugees, millions of people displaced, dead, maimed. These are massive acts of terror by the West. Well, it's all horror. It's all
0: terror, isn't it? And yet what concerns me is the way the media forgets the other side of the equation. It's all to be decried. It's all to be cried over. And yet, we're only somehow allowed to cry about one side of it, which, which we should cry about. But Seriously, it's not a level playing
1: field. You have, me, you have you know. seen not a single question, not a single investigation made by any of the Western media. They're just out there cheering on whatever the government tells them. Will there be an investigation? No. If there is, you'll never hear it. Did you ever remember back to Charlie Hebdo? the very night, a high official in French police who's investigating the case, the case of his career, and right in the middle of this, he commits suicide. And no one has ever explained this. Ulrich Freddu was his name. I don't remember who it was, but we, we never get any explanation. Sure. Well, why does a guy in the, with the case of his career in the very middle, he's sitting there in the office investigating and decides to kill himself? We don't get any explanation of that either. We don't get any explanation how such professional killers at the Charlie Hebdo office are later bumbling idiots who can't do anything. We always have the left behind ID, and it's never believable. Oh, the passport of uh, Mohammed Ad or whoever it was survived the destruction of the World Trade Towers, but nothing else survived but the passport. Oh, the Charlie Hebdo killers left their ID in the backseat of the getaway car. And again, now we've got all these passports. And it always is a mastermind. There's always a mastermind. You see, first of all, the police say, we have no idea this could happen. But within a few hours, they know who the mastermind is. If you go to RT right now, you'll see the photograph of the mastermind is some kid. Some kid. He's the mastermind of the Paris attacks. He's dead, riddled with bullets. That's another thing. The masterminds are always dead. No one ever gets to question them. They're always dead. There's never anybody to question. How come you always kill the masterminds? You can catch them. You don't have to kill them. Fifty police converge on two people, and they have to kill the two people. I mean, you know, as you get to somebody at some point has to see that something is not right because the same story has the same pattern every time.
0: Absolutely. Yes, I, I, I totally agree with you. As soon as I hear something like, oh, a passport has been discovered, I know in most people's mind that is, a, well, that's evidence of, you know, we know who's, we, we've got some indication of who did it. But in my mind, that's, well, why on earth would they be carrying a passport to such a scene anyway? They're going to their death. They don't need a passport yeah. at that moment. It, well, that's I, absurd.
1: Or well, why would they even have one? How did all these millions of refugees have passports in the first place. <laughs> Did they know they were going to be leaving and applied for a passport and said, oh, yes, we're going to Europe and give us a passport? <laughs> Look, let's get on to another topic. I I agree with you. This, We don't know. We're not going to find out. They're not going to tell us. They're just going to lie to us. We just have to Add it to the other lies. I mean, we we still don't even know who killed John Kennedy. I mean, I don't get it. the Public doesn't know, and they never will know because the government will never say.
0: Okay, and of course we can wait for more research to be done because, of course, people are. Well, it
1: won't matter whatever the, the research will. If it if it's a story different from the official story, it's a conspiracy theory, period. And therefore, it doesn't matter who does what research. It doesn't matter how cogent any arguments or questions that I raise are. Uh, they 're not going to get anywhere except for a very few people who can think outside the box and there's not many of those people, and there probably not enough of them to do anything so let's get on to your other topic, I think
0: yes, okay, Yeah, I wanted to ask you about these uh, free trade or yeah. ag- well, so-called free trade agreements, and of course the TPP in particular now that it's been released November the fifth. Uh, Several thousand, over 5,000 pages of, well, quite frankly, legal jargon. Um, So there are also the TTIP, which is the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, which is still being secretly negotiated. And uh, we have the TISA, the uh, Trade in Services Agreement, which is uh, coming down the road as well. So I really wanted to ask you about the TPP, of course, because that's the one that we have access to now. Now, you wrote a piece at your blog about 10 days ago called The Reinsurfment of Western People's and uh, you link to a powerful piece by Chris Hedges. Called the most brazen corporate power grab in American history, it does a really good job, I think, of pointing out just how devastating this TPP looks like it's going to be if it does in fact get accepted by the U.S. Congress, which it looks like it's going to, under this fast track yeah. legislation. Now, we did have an interview here on TMR about this last year with a, a UK film director, David Malone, went into quite a lot of detail about this. So I'm going to say to people, please go back and listen to that uh, initial interview there. But uh, you know, you said this was something that you've been meaning to write about. At Length, So I'm going to invite you, please, would you share your thoughts about this TPP with us now on this program?
1: Yes, it has nothing whatsoever to do with trade. They use trade because they can associate that with free trade, which they have everybody brainwashed to think is good and everybody benefits. But it has nothing whatsoever to do with trade. What these partnerships do, both the Atlantic and the Pacific, what they do is they make the global corporations, immune to the laws of the country in which they do business. Because any law that interferes with the corporation can be said to be a restraint on trade, particularly if it adversely affects the profits of the corporation. So what these partnerships are and are intended to be is to make corporations immune to the law of sovereign countries. Indeed, further, it puts the sovereign countries under the control of corporate tribunals who can rule, for example, that the French laws against GMOs are restraints of trade, and these corporate tribunals are higher law than the French government and can fine the French government for these laws, can sue the French government for these laws. Anything that interferes with the profit of a global corporation is defined as a restraint on trade, illegal, and the sovereign, so-called sovereign government responsible, is subject to retribution, financial retribution from the corporate tribunals who sit above the sovereign law of the countries. That's what the partnerships do. Why would anyone agree to this? Because they're paid off. Every one of the negotiators was paid off. You
0: linked to a very remarkable article by uh, Paola Casala in Op-Ed News from 20th of June. And she lists uh, the data here about who was paid what. And uh, there are representatives who voted yes, were paid, she says, $197 million. For the noes. Uh, they were paid $23 million. So it's very clear where the weighting is on that one. Well,
1: that is about uh, the fast-track decision that Congress made. And this is about the payoffs in terms of political contributions to the re-election funds of the representatives and senators paid by the corporations that favored the partnerships and the small amount of money that uh, was paid to the people who voted against it. These are from environmental type organizations Mm. opposed to GMOs and that sort of thing. And so, yes, the Congress was paid off with political contributions to grant the fast track. And what fast track means is it means that the U S trade representative, that is a corporate agent can make the agreements with corporate agents of the other countries in secret and then when the agreement is made they go to the respective legislatures of the various countries involved in the agreement to be voted on and of course then they'll all be paid off again to vote for it the payments i was referring to in our conversation now is that each of the representatives from the countries who were negotiating with the US trade representatives, they were paid off. And that's how you get a situation where countries agree to give away their sovereignty to corporations. It's impossible for this agreement to go through as they are constructed and not have the loss of the sovereignty of the countries to the corporations. That's what the purpose of the agreement is. It's to make corporations the rulers of the countries. All the other talk is beside the point, and there are many things to get upset about. But to talk about all these other things, it screams what the real thrust is. And the real thrust is that, for example, as I said, the French GMO laws have to be struck from the book. And any other laws that interfere with what corporations want to do. Mm.
0: The real engine of this seems to be the ISDS, the investor state dispute settlement clauses that uh, are embedded in this. So if a corporation has invested in a particular country and that country brings about policy that that corporation feels has in some way damaged what profits it expected to make, then according to this particular legislation... It can then sue that country. That's the particular offence, isn't it, this ISDS clause?
1: Yes. Uh And I think, too, that it's not up to the country's courts. These partnerships, as they're called, set up tribunals, staffed by the corporations themselves that make the ruling. That's the way I read it and understand it. And so, in effect, it basically means the 1% takes the rest. Public control there's nothing left after that
0: so the, the these tribunals are you say there are three people and they're making the decision on this kind of thing yes i think
1: that's the way it is
0: well david malone who was on the program now let me just quote from him because he echoes what you say quote arbitration works as follows three arbitrators will be chosen one, one by, by the, company the company that's
2: taking the nation to arbitration second one by the the nation To defend it. And the third one will be agreed upon by the first two arbitrators. If they can't agree, there's a mechanism for someone just choosing the third arbitrator for you. Those three people, and they are just people, they are private individuals, almost exclusively drawn from the top 15 global law firms, companies like Freshfields, which are vast. They are a small group of international lawyers drawn from those companies. Those three people, mostly men, mostly European or American, meet behind closed doors. They don't have to publish what evidence was adduced, who gave that evidence, what they said – And they don't have to justify their decision. They don't have to give you a written statement of why they decided in favor of the company or in favor of the nation. And there is no appeals process. And you, as a a member of a nation, have, and this I'm quoting from someone, you have no rights within that process. That's a quote from a law professor who's an expert on arbitration. No rights. rights. No rights in this process.
1: Right. That's exactly correct. Uh, and keep in mind that these, these law firms are the law firms that serve the corporations. So they're not, in any sense, independent either, because all their revenues come from representing the corporations. So that's exactly the case. That's what I said. It simply means uh, government is dispensed with. There's no point in having presidents, prime ministers, parliaments, or even courts, because all decisions are now made by the corporations. And they have total control over the outcome and don't have to give any accounting of how they make decisions. So what you read is correct. That person is correct. And that's the intent of these partnerships. And again, how much of this is the media telling you? Mm.
0: Virtually nothing. Nothing yes, indeed. Well, I've mentioned yes. it to people in my own you know, social life and they just look at you blankly. Yeah, <laughs> <What>? I know. <laughs> There are a couple of other things that I wanted to just bring to attention. Uh, James Corbett's written a piece about this with for International Forecaster, three particular ways in which the TPP, he says, even worse than we imagined, he just picks out three things here, interpreting the legal jargon. Uh, a couple of things here I noted, one was copyright and IP, and he says that under this agreement, then the TPP privileges the complainer so that... ISPs will be obliged to take down material that's complained against uh, for copyright reasons uh, just by default so even if it's fair use copyrighted material it can be just taken down if somebody complains about it and then of course the person who's had the material taken down will need to go through lengthy processes you know to reinstate that so I mean that obviously means that corporations governments can just hide whatever information they don't like even if it's used under fair use
1: right exactly
0: Another one which he uh, pointed to is food safety, which you've also mentioned, but uh, he notes that imports will be, uh, you'll have to object to an import based on objective science, which is very vague. And I can't help thinking that means establishment science. So, you know, entities like the FDA will need to define what is objective, you know. Um, So, I mean, just having grounds for concern won't matter. You actually could have to prove on the, the basis of what these establishment bodies would say is proof that a product is unsafe. So the onus is on you to prove that things are unsafe to consume, which is, you know, to, to my mind, is completely the opposite of what it should be. So this all sounds extremely bad.
1: Yes, it is. And it'll go through because the corporations will pay off the crooked politicians and they'll take the money and let it go through. That's exactly what will happen. You have to understand what this basically means is that we've moved to a higher form of tyranny. This is tyranny beyond anything that uh, George Orwell could imagine, uh, or fascism, or anything of the sort. This is, this is ruled by money, the top, the one percent, or actually the one-tenth of one percent. This is ruled by them on the basis of money, and money alone. And it's devoid of any concept of justice or mercy or fairness or, you know, concern for others. Uh, it's driven by maximizing the bottom line. And um, what this shows is that in the end, uh, capitalism becomes the most tyrannical of all systems. It becomes a political system in itself and a tyrannical and more so even than kings once were or, or Roman emperors because there's no check on the power of the corporations. All restraints on the power of corporations are removed and gone. No restraint of law, no restraint of democracy, no restraint of morality. It's total freedom of corporations to loot, extract, whatever they want.
0: What do you make of the, I think, rather lame claim that this is going to be good for people's wages and for employment? It's a lie,
1: like everything else. It's just another lie.
0: It does seem to me to be implausible. I would have thought that it would lead to more and more offshoring, more unemployment, and you know, downward pressure on wages because of international competition. Well, uh,
1: the corporations can rule that minimum wage laws adversely affect their products and have to be repealed. So there can't be any labor laws under partnerships. Labor laws are passe. They're overturned, just like laws against GMOs are overturned. There can't be any law. The corporation has to supply any kind of benefits, medical coverage, or pensions, or accept or unions. Or, I mean, the corporations can say, oh, I will pay 10 cents an hour. That's it. Anything else adversely affects our profits. They, they can do whatever they want. It's a dictatorship of one-tenth of the 1%. And Now, the question is, since Russia and China are not part of this, what are the consequences? The BRICS are in it. South America's not. What do we have? We have a situation where in the so-called democratic world, that is, Washington's European and Asian puppets, like Japan, Korea, and of course, the Europeans, they live in total tyranny by what happens with Russia and China and the BRICS. They're not brought into this system. So you have two different worlds and they don't
0: interact. So, we're getting a kind of Eurasia and Oceania situation. Exactly.
1: exactly. That's exactly what you're getting. And of course, you can't talk about this or get any discussion because corporations don't want the media to talk about it. If they do, they pull their advertising, and the media dies. So, the corporations have the same control over the media that governments do. You see, in the United States, 90% of the media belongs to six mega companies the value of the companies is their federal broadcast licenses and their advertising revenues. If they go against the government, the federal broadcast licenses might not be renewed, in which case companies worth billions and billions of dollars fall to zero net worth. If, on the other hand, they annoy the people who provide the advertising revenues by exposing these partnerships or anything of the sort, there go the advertising revenues, and so their revenues fall, their costs up, they're micro. Yeah. So the media essentially has the Western media has no independence, not.
0: Yes, it's Noam Chomsky, isn't it, who describes corporations as being psychopathic in uh, structure. And uh, it looks to me as if they're somehow sort of projecting that psychopathy onto the whole globe, really, as just a sort of a structural reality of their existence. You know, it doesn't need a huge conspiracy to bring this about. If that's what corporations are like in the way they actually function, then if they go global, then they do that to the whole world. Exactly.
1: Exactly. You know, mankind faces uh, enormous number of crises about which people are essentially ignorant have no idea and you can't tell them certainly the media will not tell them well of
0: course the alternative media can but then of course it's very easy to say well we'll dismiss the alternative media because they're just a bunch of conspiracy theorists right
1: right Mm. they're conspiracy theorists
0: that's right the other thing i did want to ask you just very briefly about is the TISA, which sounds really quite frightening in its own way, um, where service industry um, is going to be liberalized, so the governments are going to find it harder and harder to actually provide public services. And uh, I've read that the US Postal Service is most likely to become privatized in various ways. Now, I turn to the European Commission's website to see what the EU uh, is saying about this. And they say... This is what they say, that uh, education, health, social services, water, TV, and, of course, justice, police, etc., are going to be protected in various ways. You know, and they're they're very positive about that. It's a sort of Q&A. Will will this be affected? Will that be affected? They say, no, no, don't worry about that kind of thing. But, you know, I can't help but fear, you know, when you give these definitions, you know, oh, education won't be affected. That's okay. Governments will still be able to provide that. It's so vague that there may be all sorts of services within education that could be privatized, that I'm not sure where this begins and ends, you know. So my fears are still for those very areas that they say are going to be protected. I mean, what do you feel about that? Do you think those are, even those areas are under danger?
1: Uh, yes, I do. We just just look at the extent of privatization within the United States military, all sorts of uh, functions that used to be performed by the military itself are now performed by highly paid private enterprises. Look at the uh, enormous uh, amount of privatized prisons in the United States. We now have a massive number of privatized prisons. Uh, The contracts require that the prisons be kept full. The inmate population is uh, leased out to private companies for tiny wages, you know, 69 cents an hour, stuff like that. These prison populations are employed producing all kinds of things, military gear, customer service work for corporations. Some of them are making components for Apple Computer. All of this is another lucrative aspect of the privatization. The labor is leased out to private firms, and is not paid. So we could easily have a situation
0: where education is officially provided by the government, and yet all the teaching staff work for some company that the local yeah. education authority is... Yeah, they hire, they,
1: they will hire a private firm to come run it, yeah. It's, you know, this has happened extensively in the military. You know, you, you know, it used to be soldiers would have KP duty, that meant kitchen duty, you know, they'd sit there peeling potatoes and, the army now is all fed into private contracts, by private firms. That's just one example. The national health will be privatised. The government will hire private firms to provide the medical services.
0: And yet they specifically say, no, that's not in danger. And yet the picture that you're painting here is of it being eaten away from inside by all these privatised arrangements.
1: Yet never pay any attention to anything a government says. Hmm. What government has ever kept its word about anything? In fact, I challenge you to find one true statement coming out of the United States government in the last 20 years. One. Just <laughs> um, find one. I'll
0: have a go, and I, I might get back to you at length. Perhaps not. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I think we've covered it, uh, Julian. It's a, a dangerous situation uh, for the West. I think the West essentially no longer exists. There's a caricature of it. But it's not there. all of its uh, institutions, things like civil liberties, things that people fought for for centuries. you know where it began with uh, uh, in uh, England with Magna Carta, first, uh, only the aristocracy had any civil liberties, and then over the year, over the centuries gradually gets extended, you get the glorious revolution, 1680, now parliament is supreme, not the king. King's subject to law. People are protected by the rule of law. These are massive achievements that took centuries. They're all gone. 9-11 got rid of all of them. Because everything that's happened since 9-11 has been a consequence of that agenda the latest being the Paris attacks, which has now gotten rid of whatever civil liberties the French had. And the same thing will occur in Britain. I mean, you've already had your post office sold off in hmm. private cool. They can sell the post office. They can sell the national health. Hmm. So how can the corporations make money when all the jobs in the West are offshore and nobody has any money because uh, in the United States, the uh, real median family income has been falling for years. So, where is the consumer demand? How do you make money? You can't. The way the corporations make money now is they appropriate the tax revenues. The government hires them to perform public functions and pays them with tax revenues. It's the only way corporations can make money. The banks can make money by extracting economic rents, uh, capitalizing them into debt obligations, and collecting interest. Nobody else. There's no other way you can make any money. And if you've got any savings, how can you make any money in your savings? You've got zero interest rates, negative interest rates. Stock markets, which are, you are got to be crazy to be in there because uh, it's all a house of cards. It's a gambling casino. Um, nobody can make money. The corporations can't make money. And so they're moving into being paid to perform public Operations out of tax revenues that pay tax revenues. So you've had cities like Chicago that sold off the revenues of their parking meters, and so now uh, some group wants to have a parade in Chicago. They can't get a permit because uh, Chicago can't close the street because if it closes the streets, the private firms that own the parking meters can sue them for loss of revenues. So all of these things are already happening.
0: The picture that you're painting here actually ultimately fits very much with what Patrick Wood talks about, technocracy, that essentially we're ultimately looking at a power grab, a takeover of everything, so that nobody is going to be able to do anything but by the say-so of these corporate fascist entities which are identical, really, with government, just power bases, and that's it.
1: Yeah, they become the government. Like we said, the partnerships make them the government. They're higher than the government. They just own everything. They own the right to make all the decisions. Mm. Uh, you know, courts disappear, parliaments disappear. Who needs a president or a prime minister? You have a technocrat instead. <laughs> you have the corporations ruling mm. from the standpoint of their bottom line. Sure. So. We've covered the waterfront. The people need to know this. I'd like to know if your readers actually believe what we are telling them.
0: (laughs) I'll let you know. (laughs) Um, One last thing I will ask you is, do you think there's any chance that the TPP will not go through, or do you think it's just fait accompli?
1: I kind of think the French would have protected their food, because that's important to them, and that they would have probably blocked it or at least gotten some kind of concession. It might have been a fake concession full of loopholes. But now with these Paris attacks and the way that's playing out, I think that people are just now going to be swept along with whatever comes. I don't, I don't think that the Western people are up to the challenges that they face.
0: So you think the TPP will be fast-tracked through and that'll be that? Yeah,
1: yeah it will.
0: That's what I think. So, I mean, if that is the case, then what is left for us? mean, is, is it just a case of organizing boycotts of products and targeting, you know, where you put your investment and consumer unions, depositor unions, you know, fighting back with your, with your pound and your dollar? I mean, is that all we're left with?
1: I don't know. It may be that if you boycott something, you're adversely affecting the profits and you may get sued. It's hard to know. I don't think anybody will have any rights but the corporation's. Yeah. So probably you can't do anything. And, and the real question is whether the Russians and Chinese would get caught up in this. Their economists are they're the same as I was. They're all these neoliberal people. And what neoliberal economics does is justify the right of private property to exploit and, and loot. That's all neoliberal economics is. It's a justification for corporate rule and looting. And so the Russians, uh, they want to be part of the West. So they can be folded into this just from their own misplaced aspirations. Um, The Chinese, I don't know. know, They want to be rich too. They like all this, billions of being billionaires. And it's unclear whether they'll be rolled into it as well. Uh, You know, Russia has these oligarchs, these billionaire oligarchs that are essentially, as far as I can tell, independent of the government. And Putin has not reined them in. I would have thought by now he would have dispossessed them because it's an unfriendly power source. They have adverse effects on the Russian economic prospects. Uh, they probably have political power that can be used against him, against the Russian state. They probably are allies with globalism. These billionaire oligarchs in Russia they're probably allied with Washington and London. And yet they're there, nothing happens to them. They, what they have is stolen, and they should be nationalized, dispossessed. In fact, they probably should be put in prison. But nothing happens. So I don't know. I think, you know, all, all of us said something about the future being a boot in the human face forever. And this may be the worldwide result, it may be where we're all, where we're all headed.
0: So that may be the face of what has been called for so many years, but now we're justified perhaps in calling the new world order.
1: Yeah. It's the boot and the human face forever. In other words, you can't get it off. You can't. There's no more revolt.
0: But you think there is a chance that it won't go there because of the the other side of the equation, the BRICS side of the equation?
1: If they have the realization, I'm not sure they do. And, you know, if you look, history from the 19th and 20th century, the dominance of the West and everybody looks to the West. And uh, Putin seems to be a leader capable of decisions but he also has these inclinations to be accepted in the West and cooperate with the West and he keeps calling his deadly enemies his partners. <laughs> I mean, we've made it completely clear we want to destroy him. We've even had uh, former CIA officials called for his assassination, and uh, John McCain called for his death, and he still talks about his American partners. You know, for long after the fall of Rome, uh, all the barbarians still sort of worship the Roman empress. <laughs> and on their coinage they always had a picture of Caesar, <laughs> because the authority of money was associated with Rome Caesar. You have these uh, coins uh, from the barbarian kingdoms that followed Rome, and they've got Caesar. <laughs> so I, I, don't know, Jim. And I can't say.
0: No, no, sure. But there are still some question marks out there, and perhaps we can, we can hope that there's something lurking behind the question marks that there still are. And uh, of course, if we are looking at, as you described it, with the Orwellian phrase, the uh, the, the boot on the face forever and we're looking at that monolithic new world order, then it seems certainly from my perspective that we would be looking only at a transcendent hope. But of course, that's something for which this particular station stands for. So I would still hold out that hope to people to look to that transcendent hope. But when you're actually looking at just what's going on in the world today, I think we have to be very much realists. And I thank you ever so much for coming on and sharing your perspective with us. Um, I do hope that people do take very seriously what it is that you say and uh, that whatever it is that we can do and maybe it's very puny but whatever it is we can do that we share the information that we have so that people around us are aware of what's going on at that very least I think we need to be aware and I do still believe in the power of sharing information and thank you I know that you must do too because you are continually sharing information at your blog paulcraigroberts.org so thank you very much for coming on and it's always great to speak with you.
1: I appreciate your interest in the the fact that you share your audience with me. Thank you very much.